of Leia foundation, uh, the foundation I think that Paul is trying to lay here in his introduction, because I think that he uses uh, what he says here as a way to to build on uh, throughout the rest of the book what is a proper Christian ethics. All right. So, First Corinthians chapter one. Verses 1 through 9. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today again for uh, this opportunity. We pray, God, that you would speak to us through your word, as Jesus said, because your word is truth. I pray now, Lord, that as we uh, begin 1 Corinthians, we would be able to see um, not only the, the Corinthians in this book, but help us to see ourselves. Help us to see where uh, we are not walking in line with our calling. Help us to see where our worldview um, does not line up with a, a, a Christian worldview, but that it, it lines up with the, the worldly wisdom. And help us to be able to see that and correct that so that we can live our lives uh, in, in line with our calling as Christians. We ask now, Lord, as we walk our way uh, through this, this, this passage, as well as the rest of the book, Lord, uh, that, that you would give us your grace, help us to understand um, how these things apply to us. And I pray that you would, would help us uh, to to make the changes necessary so that we can live out a, a proper Christian identity and also proper Christian ethics. We thank you now for this in Jesus name. Amen. We have all heard the phrase identity crisis before. In fact, when we hear the phrase, most people probably conjure up the same image, and that is the image of a middle-aged man trying to assuage his feelings of a midlife crisis by purchasing a super expensive sports car. <coughs> However, an identity crisis can occur at various stages in life, beginning in our teenage years when we develop confusion about who we are versus what we should be doing. And it can reoccur throughout our life when we face difficult challenges and experiences. Kendra Cherry, a psychosocial rehabilitation specialist says, people tend to experience them at various points throughout life, particularly at points of great change, including beginning a new relationship, ending a marriage or partnership, experiencing a traumatic event, having a child, learning about a health condition, losing a loved one, losing or starting a job, and moving. It is important for us to keep in mind that an identity crisis centers around confusion over who we are and what we should be doing. I would argue that a crisis always results when our behavior does not match our true identity. So today I want to talk to you all from the, the title, The Christian Identity Crisis. I believe that many Christians today are experiencing an identity crisis, that is a Christian identity crisis. There are discrepancies between our beliefs and our behavior. Take for example this excerpt that I found from an article titled, are religious people more moral? Okay, I hate that word, moral. Okay, <laughs> I can't pronounce it. 
The article says, just a small excerpt from it, says, in any case, religiosity is only loosely related to theology. That is, the beliefs and behaviors of religious people are not always in accordance with official religious doctrines. Instead, popular religiosity tends to be much more practical and intuitive. This is what religious scholars call theological incorrectness. When researchers ask people to report on their own behaviors and attitudes, religious individuals claim to be more altruistic, compassionate, honest, civic, and charitable than non-religious ones. But when we look at actual behavior, these differences are nowhere to be found. Researchers have now looked at multiple aspects of moral conduct, from charitable giving and cheating on exams to helping strangers in need and cooperating with anonymous others. In a classical experiment known as the Good Samaritan Study, researchers monitored who would stop to help an injured person lying in an alley. They found that religiosity played no role in helping behavior, even when participants were on their way to deliver a talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan, translation, including pastors. Okay. This finding has now been confirmed in numerous laboratory and field studies. Overall, the result is clear. No matter how we define morality, religious people do not behave more morally than atheists, although they often say and likely believe that they do. On the other hand, religious reminders do have a documented effect on moral behavior. I thought this was sad but funny. Studies conducted among American Christians, for example, have found that participants donated more money to charity and even watched less porn on Sundays. However, they compensated on both accounts during the rest of the week. As a result, there were no differences between religious and non-religious participants on average. I'm just let that sink in. It's sad when unsaved people have to call you out about you not living in accordance with your calling. And it's funny that he says uh, that they that they say that we think that we are more charitable, more moral, that we do better. But when you dig into the into the information, we actually don't. We do better on Sundays. Unless you have to stop for somebody on your way to church to help them. Because then you'd be like, I can't help you today. I got to get to church. Okay. <laughs> this is a sad commentary on religious people in general and Christians in particular. This Christian identity crisis is not a new phenomenon, though. Paul addressed the same concern with the believers in the church of Corinth. They had expressed faith in Christ, and in theory, they had accepted their new identity as ones who had been made holy and dedicated to God. But in practice, they were not able to separate from their former lives. Even after being Christians for a number of years, Paul needed to address issues in the church, such as division amongst various factions. We talked about that last week. You know, I like this preacher better than another preacher. Okay. Um, incest 
in the church, lawsuits between members in the church, members fornicating with temple prostitutes, divorce and remarriage, eating food sacrificed to idols, some people getting drunk during communion. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's why we don't serve real wine. Okay. I went to went to this to a church with one of my uh, my best friends in, in high school and I was like, ooh, I'm like, ooh, y'all church serve real wine? I meant to come to y'all church. <laughs> okay. But well, we don't do that no more. We don't do that no more. Um and disruptions during the worship service. Okay. Like us, there were still huge gaps between the Corinthians' faith and their practice. Paul begins this epistle by relaying the foundation for the Christian identity. That is the grace of God, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He uses his introduction in order to highlight the identity and benefits of those who belong to Christ. This salutation is full of details explaining our status in Christ. He says that we are sanctified, we are called, we are enriched, we are not lacking any gifts, we are strengthened, and we are blameless. Paul is establishing their and our own identity as Christians in order to have a foundation on which to build proper Christian ethics. Paul aims, Paul's aim is to reshape their worldview. He wants them to see themselves and the world from the perspective of their relationship to Christ instead of seeing everything from the perspective of their cultural and worldly wisdom. Now, I want to read uh, this section here, verses 1 through 9, so that we can see exactly what, what Paul is saying here. And again, I want us to see what Paul is doing uh, throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, is he is addressing practical problems in the church. But he never addresses practical problems in the church apart from deeply rooted theology. He uses the, th his, the theology that he is laying here in the introduction and th throughout the book, he uses that as a foundation on how we are to live. So our theology is supposed to determine our ethics. First Corinthians chapter one, verses one through nine. Says Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that, is, that has been given you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you have been enriched in him, in speech and knowledge of every kind, just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By him you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, Paul begins here by reveling in the grace of God. 
He says that he thanks God always for these believers because of the grace that they have received in Christ. Paul is not thanking, um, is not thanking God for possessing any particular attribute. Okay, so when we think of God's grace, right, we think about God's nature, his essence. But Paul is talking about grace in the sense of God's action. Grace is God's disposition to grant favor to and to act favorably for the well-being of those who do not deserve it. So when Paul talks about God's grace, he's not just talking about God being a gracious being. He's talking about what God has done for those people who do not deserve his grace. Gilbert Bilizikian says that grace is the dimension of divine activity that enables God to confront human indifference and rebellion with an inexhaustible capacity to forgive and bless. The only reason that God is able to bless you and not curse you and not punish you in your sin is because of his grace. Paul starts here reveling in God's grace because his grace is the only reason that God can reach out to us in a favorable way instead of sending us all to hell. Ultimately, grace is what God does to change rebellious sinners into loving children. It is his empowerment to live in accordance with our calling. Paul spends the rest of his introduction detailing elements that are foundational to the Christian identity. They are uh, the grace of God then is the cornerstone of this foundation. So what I want us to see here is Paul is, is spending this time trying to rebuild the Corinthians understanding of, of who they are in Christ. Like most of us, um, they heard the gospel, right? They received the gospel. They understood the gospel. But again, when we understand the gospel, we understand it on, on a, a limited basis. But they did not take the time to go deeply enough in the gospel to help them start to rearrange and change their worldview. Right. They were, were still stuck in their cultural and worldly wisdom so that in theory, right, they knew who they were in Christ but they were not living that way. <clears throat> like all of us in, in, in different places in our life struggle. So what Paul is trying to teach them is that God's grace is his power available to them to live in accordance with their calling. In order to lay a foundation, a builder needs a lot of concrete. Concrete is a mixture of the right elements in the right proportions. Okay, so so you need the right things in your concrete if you're going to lay a foundation that's strong enough to build a house. So what are some of the things that Paul is going to put in this foundation, in this concrete? Now, uh, a regular builder needs cement, air, water, sand and gravel in order to make concrete to build a foundation. Paul here is telling us in this passage that the elements that are needed for a strong Christian identity 
<clears throat> excuse me, I don't have the coronavirus. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, that the elements that are needed for a strong Christian identity is our dedication to God. You can write these down. These are my points. Our dedication to God. Our status as saints. The wealth of resources that we have in Christ. Our security in Christ. I'm going to say him again. I'm going to say him again. And our fellowship with Christ. These elements are our dedication to God. Our status as saints. The wealth of resources we have in Christ. Our security in Christ. And our fellowship with Christ. You got them. You need them again. All right. I'm going to I'm not going to take a lot of time. I'm going to briefly hit each one of these points and um, so that we can kind of understand this again. Uh, what I want us to do is to, to start really as Paul is, is explaining to the Corinthians. I want us to to really understand who we are and the benefits that we have in Christ. And as we as we really and there's no way for us to fully understand this in this lifetime. Right. Because of the limitations of our, our flesh and because of our, our sin. Um, but but this is what we as Christians need to work on consistently trying to understand all that Christ is for us. OK. Now, first here, Paul tells us that we have been dedicated to God because of Jesus Christ. Paul begins by telling the Corinthians that as Christians, we are sanctified in Christ. We see that in verse two. And oftentimes when we hear the word sanctification, we think of what? Sister Mitz? <laughs> so I thought you knew it. N no, that's justification. Gradual growing righteousness. All right. Everybody else failed. That was our question from last month. I, I had to. I had to throw it in there to make sure y'all was paying attention. All right. So when we think about sanctification, that was our catechism question last week. Right. Right. What do justification and sanctification mean? Sanctification, we normally think of simply as our gradual growing righteousness. And when we think about that, we think about the slow, lifelong process that it takes for us to grow spiritually mature and to become um, live holy lives. And. That is not wrong. That is true. That is what sanctification is. However, Paul is trying to focus on in, in this passage, I believe he's trying to not necessarily focus on the, the, the gradualness of our sanctification. He's talking about the impetus for that lifelong process. Right. What what is true about us? that causes us to engage in this lifelong process of trying to live a more holy lifestyle. And Paul says that is our being dedicated to God. That's what it means to be sanctified 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so the word sanctified means to be dedicated to, to be set apart. Okay, it also means to be to become holy. But again, I think that the holiness is the result of our being dedicated to God. Paul says in Christ, you have been sanctified or set apart or dedicated to God. And this dedication to God means that we are supposed to be distinct from the world. We're supposed to be distinct from the world and devoted to God. You're supposed to be distinct from the world and devoted to God. This distinction and devotion will in turn produce an increase in morality. So notice what I said. When we are different and distinct from the world and we devote ourselves to God, the result of that is moral purity. We begin to grow more righteous and more holy in our life as we separate ourselves from the world and devote ourselves more and more to God. Think of it this way. Items that are rare and or are devoted to a specific use grow in value. Now, let me give you this an example, something that probably all of us uh, will, will, will relate to. Growing up, your household probably had in the dining room a china closet. Okay. Now, a china closet is basically a museum for dishes. Okay. You, there's, you put the dishes in there, and all you can do is look at those dishes. Trust me, I can tell you how much trouble you will get in if you use those dishes if it's not a special occasion, okay? You put the dishes to the side, oftentimes they might be dishes that have been passed down from, you know, from, from um, past generations. And so we, we put these dishes to the side because they're dedicated for special use, special holidays. If you want to just get something to eat, you better go in the kitchen and get one of the regular plates out the cabinet. Okay. Because if you use one of these dishes and you break them, you're in a world of trouble. For normal everyday meals, you can't use dishes in the china closet because they have been sanctified. (laughs) They've been sanctified. They have been set aside for a special use. And because they have been set aside for a special use, in our minds, they have uh, more value. That is the same thing when it comes to our sanctification. Because we have been set aside and dedicated to God, and because we devote ourselves to him, we grow in value, so to speak, which is our righteousness, our holiness. And that, of course, takes place over time. Paul is saying something similar um, here about Christians. Christians are ones who, because of Jesus, have been set aside for God's use. Right? We, we exist for God. We live for God. 
We are here for his purposes. We have been dedicated to God and we should devote ourselves to God. This means that there should be tangible and visible distinctions and differences in the lives, thinking, choices, and worldviews of Christians and non-Christians. When you look at the life of someone who is a Christian, you should see physical and tangible ways that their lives are different from those people in the world around them. When you look at the way Christians think, there should be tangible and visible distinctions in the way we as Christians think versus the way non-Christians think. When you look at the choices that we as Christians make, there should be tangible and visible distinctions in the, in the choices that we make in life versus the choices that unbelievers make in life. And you should be able to see visible and tangible distinctions and differences in the worldview of a Christian versus the worldview of non-Christians. We will go through and experience the same kind of issues. But the way we see those issues and respond to those issues should be different. This is what I think Paul means when he says we have been sanctified in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul goes on to the second one, right? First, he says that we have been dedicated to God. Second, he says that you have been, have been called to be a saint. Right. Hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, we have some serious doubts about that, right? <laughs> called to be a saint. And here, my second point that I want to, to say is, well, let me, let me ask the question before I say my point. Let me ask you this question. Are you just a sinner saved by grace? Yes. Are you just a sinner saved by grace? (laughs) Are are, Are we just sinners saved by grace? You are not just a sinner saved by grace. You are a saint. You won't become a saint when you get to heaven. You are a saint right now. Now, by that, I do not mean, (laughs) okay, I do not mean that you, we have reached sinless perfection, that we will not sin, that we will not fail. Okay, so let's bring on in the book of Romans. Okay, we all uh, sin and fall short of the glory of God, right? And, and Paul, that's in the present tense. You know, you continue to sin and you continue to fall short of the glory of God. And that will be true throughout the rest of our lives. But that does not affect what we call our positional righteousness in Christ. God sees you right now, not as a sinner, but he sees you already, as the, word, the Greek word for, 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 um, for saints is, as a holy one. 
someone who already has reached moral purity because you have done so in Christ. Paul says that we have been called to be saints. The idea here is to summon someone. The Greek word here denotes someone who put, whose participation or presence has been officially requested for something, especially a request to which refusal is not an option. Let me say that again. When he says that you have been called, he means someone whose participation or presence has been officially requested for something, especially a request to which refusal is not an option. You have been called to be holy. Now think of it this way. Almost every single person in here has had a, a, a summons for jury duty, correct? Yeah, yeah. Anybody lucky enough not to? Cause I don't know. I hate getting called. I get picked every single time. And they always have me on trials that are multiple days. I think the longest one I served was like 11 days. I tried my best to get out of it. I tried my best. But then... The, the judge called me up and I was like, am I going to lie or am I tell the truth? <laughs> and then the Lord said, tell the truth. And I got picked. I'm like, dang. Okay. But when you get a summons for jury duty, you may not want to go. You might fight and complain and I don't want to go. I'm tired of this. Why did God call me? Why do I always get picked? But guess what? You get up and go because participation is not optional. If you think it is optional, I have I have been in the courtroom several times where they say, send the sheriff to get them. And I've watched them bring them right on in. And they're like, oh, your honor, I forgot. Oh, my car broke down. And, you know, I've all excuses in the world. That's nice. Have a nice trip tonight right in the cell. <laughs> There are consequences that come along with thinking that the summons is optional. I think a similar idea is involved here. You have been sanctified in Christ. That means that you have been dedicated to God and therefore you are holy. And now God calls you to be in practice what he has made you spiritually. And just like with a jury duty summons, refusal is not an option. Trust me, Hebrews chapter 12 will kick in. He spanks every child that he loves. And trust me, I've been spanked a lot of times. It is not nice. <laughs> okay, Holiness is not an option for Christians. We have been called in order to be holy. And I think that this is why after immediately after saying that we have been called to be holy, Paul uses the word Lord two times in the verse. Verse two, he says to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He is letting you know you have a master, you are a slave, and slaves do not tell their masters no. They have no right to refuse. We have been called to a holy lifestyle. Refusal is not optional. 
Now, this requires an identity change because when we say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, what we mean is, yeah, I'm just excusing the reason why I keep falling into this sin. <laughs> okay. Because I, I'm just a sinner. I have no, I have no other way out of it. I, I'm stuck. I'm just trapped. I'm helpless and I'm hopeless to do anything else. But when we recognize that we are not sinners, only sinners saved by grace, but that we are saints, we have been sanctified already and called to a holy lifestyle. What we recognize is that in Christ, we are already holy. In Christ, we are already righteous. In Christ, we have already become victorious over the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are saints not by our own actions, but we are saints by God's calling. A saint is who God already says we are. God already says that you are saints. And so since God already calls us to be saints, it is our responsibility not to live as saints. Because again, we will still fail. We will still sin. We will still fall. Our responsibility is to adopt the identity of a saint because your identity controls your behavior. Our responsibility is not to live as saints because we will not perfectly do that. Our responsibility is to, I, is to adopt the identity of a saint because our identity will control our behavior. Seeing ourselves as saints rather than as sinners radically alters how we approach sin, culture, and the options available to us in handling life circumstances. Now, notice, I'm not saying that we, we don't have the ability to live, live holy. The Holy Spirit ins is inside of us. He will empower us to live the lifestyle that God wants us to. We will still fail. Notice what I am saying. What I'm saying is your identity will determine how well you use the Holy Spirit's power to live. If you see yourself solely as a sinner saved by grace, you're going to give yourself outs. But if you see yourself already as a saint, you adopt that identity, identity, it will change the way you approach sin. Right? You, you won't approach sin as something that has victory over you already. You will approach sin as something you have the ability to overcome. If you adopt the identity of a saint, it will change how you approach culture. It will change how you approach the options that you have available, right? Because the world will give you options, <laughs> right? But the way we approach those options will be determined by our identity. Now, let me just give you, um, give you an example, right? And I know that this is no, no one, but we are, we are, this is true of everyone in some sense, right? Now, Let's say you are 
on vacation. You're in a place where no one knows you. They don't know your identity. They don't know who you are. Okay. And you can get away with anything you want. Okay. What do you do? You live and have fun? Or do you restrain yourself? Now compare that with you're in the city that you live in. You're around people that you know, right? People who are Christians that know, you, know what you profess. You have the same options, the same options that you have in a faraway place where no one knows you. Do you restrain yourself or do you live out loud? What do we normally do? We normally, when people know us, they know our identity, what we normally do is we control ourselves. Right? We, we restrain ourselves because we care about what you think about us. But when we go away, right, should I say this? No, I shouldn't say it. I shouldn't say it. Yeah, I'm going to say it. And this is only my holy opinion. <laughs> we went on a cruise a couple years ago. Mm, I ain't going to tell on nobody. I ain't telling on nobody. That's not what I'm going to say. See, y'all thought I was going somewhere. Out of, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not going. And so many people at the church did not go on the cruise because I was on the cruise. This is my opinion. This is my opinion. See people snitching on themselves? No, I'm just like, <laughs> I'm like, listen, because I know I'm messing with y'all. I'm not talking about y'all. But so many people didn't go on the cruise. They just, oh, we just can't go. So then we went on the cruise and they saw all of the pictures and they were like, oh, that pastor was at the club dancing too. They're like, oh, we going next time. And I'm like, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So see, I had to start doing some calculations. I'm like, oh, if I wasn't there, they would go and live it up. But because I was there, they like, he going, you know, he going to cramp my flow. <laughs> but they're like, oh, Pastor had fun too. Like, oh, we going next time. See, I, I'm, I'm, I'm making fun of this. But, but the point I'm making is, is that, here's the true fact. The point I'm making is, 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 I lost my train of thought. <laughs> the point I'm making is, I look back at my notes. Wait a minute. The point I'm making is, is this. Our identity controls our behavior. When, when, we, when, we, when we are concerned about our identity and people know our identity, we control our behavior. We act a certain way. When we think that we're free and nobody knows us, right, and we can get away with it, we go in and do it. <laughs> what I'm trying to get us to see is we have to adopt a, 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 an identity of a Christian, of someone who is sanctified and holy at all times, because that will dictate our behavior. Now, there's nothing wrong with dancing. I've been dancing since, you know, since the 90s. Okay, now I, you know, I, I had to change the venue. <laughs> okay, but I, I'm still all about having fun. You can have fun and still be holy. 
Number three. I got six minutes. I'm going to be over my time. Number three. Paul says the third element here that's necessary for our Christian identity is that we have a wealth of spiritual resources at our disposal. We have a wealth of spiritual resources at our disposal. Here Paul says that he thanks God. This is verses four through seven. He thanks God for the grace that he has given us in Christ because we have been enriched in every way. Now, Paul makes clear in these verses that this enriching is the gospel and its effects. It is the enriching is the gospel and its effects. Listen to what Paul says. He says, uh, I'll skip to verse five. He says, for in every way you have been enriched in him in speech and knowledge of every kind, just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because they are firmly convinced of the gospel, it is bearing spiritual fruit in their lives that makes them capable of living out their calling as they eagerly wait for Christ's return. Now, when I read this, I was thinking of some, an example for this, and, and immediately I thought about uh, Kaylin Karras. Now, we make Kaylin Karras keep a bank, okay? Now, we don't give them any allowance, but they have to save any money that, that, that they get, right? So if, for their birthday or Christmas or anything, we tell them to take their money, save their money, um, and, and they have to scrutinize every purchase to make sure they have enough money to buy what they want. Okay. Now, the funny thing is that um, they haven't caught on yet, but they probably were like, oh, that's what they're doing? Okay. <laughs> Shouldn't give it away because now I know they're going to manipulate it. But what they don't realize is every time they go to their bank, they always have the same amount of money in it. They go to the store and, and, they, and, they, and at the store they be like, hmm, I got this amount of money. And, and they just calculate and stuff. And they, they spend all of their money. And then the next time they want to go to the store, magically they have the same amount of money back in the bank. <laughs> now, I don't know if they've processed it. Like, well, how my money keep getting put back in this bank? <laughs> okay. But the reason that they always have the resources that they need to get what they want is because someone else is infusing them with resources that don't belong to them. That's what Paul says here about the gospel. He says that the gospel has been strengthened among you, right? It has been confirmed in your heart, and because you are not shaky on the gospel, it is producing results. You are not lacking in any spiritual gift. You have everything, or as Paul says, you, as, as Peter would say, you have everything that you need for life and godliness. This is what God does for us in the gospel. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, God enriches us not only with his power for salvation, but also with his wisdom, knowledge, and spiritual gifts needed to live out our calling until Jesus comes. 
the gospel is the riches that God has provided for you so that you can live the way he has designed for you. Now, that means that we can't see the gospel only as our key to get into heaven. We have to see the gospel the same way Paul saw the gospel as something that we need to come back to every single day to process and understand how it applies not only for eternity, but how it applies in our everyday life. Number four. The fourth element that Paul says uh, puts here for our identity in Christ is our eternal security. You are eternally secure. As a pastor, one of the most frequent things I discuss with people is the issue of eternal security. Because we live in a world built on personal responsibility, we learn very early the truth of Paul's maxim, if you don't work, you won't eat. <laughs> okay. And we learn very quickly that everything depends on us, on our own effort. And, and, and when we become Christians, this mindset d- doesn't just evaporate. We carry that same mindset that, that all of our achievements depend on our own efforts. We oftentimes bring that same mentality right over into being Christians. We often live as if everything, including our ultimate getting into heaven, um, including our ultimately getting into heaven, depends on how well we live the Christian life. Now, naturally, I would say, if getting into heaven depends on how well we live the Christian life, I think all of us should have doubts, <laughs> right? I mean, if, if, if God says, I'm going to save you, but the only way you ultimately get into heaven is if you, you keep all of these rules, I mean, just take the Ten Commandments. If, if you, I, I'm going to save you, but you won't get in unless you follow these Ten Commandments. We all know our failings. We all know our shortcomings. And and that's why we wrestle with doubt and lack of assurance. Right. So what Paul says here is that you don't have to worry about your eternal security. Paul doesn't put the responsibility for our eternal salvation on us. Paul places the responsibility not on us, but on God. He puts the responsibility for our eternal security and also the responsibility for our justification on judgment day squarely on God. Notice what he says. He says he will strengthen you to the end. He will strengthen you to the end. The word strengthen here means to make someone or something settled securely and unconditionally. The idea is of security, and this security is the guarantee that you will be found innocent on Judgment Day. On Judgment Day, you will be standing there waiting for the hammer to drop, and you will still hear, not guilty. And it has nothing to do with how well you live the Christian life and everything to do with God's empowerment. He will strengthen you 
to the end, Paul says, so that you will be blameless, you will be innocent, you will not be guilty on judgment day. Now, all of this to bring to our minds the benediction of Jude, right? Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his presence with exceedingly great joy, right? Unto him who is able to keep you from falling. The reason that we do not fall away, the reason that we do not uh, uh, fall back into sin and turn away from God has everything to do with God strengthening you to the end. You are eternally secure. Now, this last point, I'm a, I hit this very um, um, quickly. I know I'm, I'm, I'm over my time, but th- this last point, I would say, is uh, it centers all of the other benefits that we just described. And as a matter of fact, I think that it probably produces all of the other elements. OK, um, I know that I'll probably get would get myself into trouble with some of my more reformed friends <laughs> Uh, to, to make this statement, but I think it's actually true. And I, I think that you can actually make an argument this from what, what Paul says uh, throughout his writings. Most, most um, reformed people will probably say, uh, you know, from the, the, our view of the Reformation, that justification is foundational to all of the other benefits of salvation. That justification, God declaring us righteous in Christ, um, uh, is the foundation for all of the other benefits that we receive. Okay. Um, I would say instead that our fellowship or union with Christ is, is the foundation of all of the other benefits, including justification. Okay. So they would say that that. God declares you righteous and then he unites you to Christ. I would say because I'm united to Christ, (laughs) right? God declares me righteous. He sanctifies me, right? My union with Christ is what produces everything else. Now, I know that a lot of people, when when they take that position, they go down the wrong hole. But, you know, again, I think that that's still the right point. I think Paul's point is our union with Christ is what produces all of the other benefits. Now, foundational to, to the rest of that is justification, um, but I think that 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 our union to Christ um, produces that justification. That's another story. <laughs> okay, let's stay on track. Um, he says, by him, you have been called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Now, remember, we said before that the word called means what? It means to summons someone and you cannot refuse. You have been called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. This is the idea of what we call monogism. Monogism simply says that salvation is God's work from start to finish. God calls you. You cannot refuse, <laughs> okay, uh, versus what we would call synergism, meaning that, you know, God might call you, but you have a role to play in helping God to produce the salvation, okay? 
God calls you. He summons you into fellowship with Christ and you cannot refuse. The word word fellowship means the act of sharing in the activities. This is very important. The act of sharing in the activities or privileges of an intimate association or fellowship. It is especially used of marriages and churches. Okay? Fellowship is the act of sharing in the activities or privileges of an intimate association or group, especially used of marriage and the church. Now, why is that important? Why do I say that this is very important? Think about this. When we think about our relationship with Christ, right, oftentimes we think about about religion as just another part or piece of our life, right? We think of, you know, um, you know, I have my work life, I have my church life, I have my family life. And, and so we have all of these different compartments to life of which church or my religion is just one of those components. That is not the idea of someone related to Christ. Paul says you have been called into fellowship and this idea is talking about participation in something so intimate that it is frequently, when you look at the uh, um, 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 Greek documents at that time, it is frequently used of the union between a man and a woman. Now think about this. When I go to work, I'm not just an employee. I'm still married. When I come to church, I'm just not a church member. I'm still married. Every single place I go, I'm still married. And although I don't have it on my, don't tell Janita. (laughs) I have a symbol that reminds me of that. (laughs) Okay. I get yelled at when I leave at home. (laughs) Okay. Me being a married person bleeds into every single area of my life when people call me and say hey man we want to go out on friday night you want to go you know what i have to do before i say yes or no i not just check with Janita, you know i'm, I'm a grown man you know what I'm saying? but i at least have to think <laughs> how is this going to affect my family my household the schedules and when, 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 when I get a, you know, an email about a, a, a particular conference in another state, I'm like, oh, I want to go to that conference. I can't just say, I'm just up and leave and go to conference. If I was single, I could go whenever I please. But I can't because I got to worry about, you know, oh, how's Janita going to get the kids to school? Or I have to worry about all of these things. Being married affects every single decision that I make. And yes, I do have to check. <laughs> and when I told no, I'd be like, okay. Say no. <laughs> it's the same thing with our relationship with Christ. You have been called into a relationship so intimate that it affects every single decision choice, place you go, everything. 
It affects your lifestyle. It affects your worldview. It affects what you watch on TV. It affects what comes out of your mouth. It affects where you go and where you don't go. It affects how you treat someone that is currently in the process of cussing you out. <laughs> you have been called into fellowship with Jesus. And because you are united to Jesus, you get all of the benefits. You get justification, you get sanctification, you get glorification, you get all of those things. But with the calling, there's also a responsibility. You, you, you can't just divide the church because you like the way one person preaches versus another per the way another person preaches. You, you, can't, you, you, you can't just be a Christian and live in incest. <laughs> you, you, you can't be a Christian and keep suing one another. You, you, you can't be a Christian and still keep going to the temple prostitutes. Translation, Las Vegas. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have fun when I go to Las Vegas. You know, there's a lot of family-friendly stuff to do in Las Vegas, you know. <laughs> you just got to be very careful. You gotta be put some you, you, there's things that you can and can't do. You, you should not get drunk when you come to communion. <laughs> you shouldn't get drunk while you're in communion either, right? <laughs> Being in this intimate relationship with Jesus, it has to, it has to affect every single decision of your life. Because that is the call that God has given you. Now, I'm closing this out. I want us to... To, to keep this in mind, we'll, we'll see this. Paul is trying to lay a foundation, right? And from this foundation, Paul is going to build what a Christian ethic should look like, okay? I've already just described, you know, incest and temple prostitutes and all of that stuff. That, that's not compatible with this foundation, <laughs> okay? But for some reason, the Corinthian church thought it was. And Paul spends the rest of the book trying to build on this theology of who you are in Christ because who we are in Christ must affect our ethics. It has to change how we behave, how we respond, how we treat people. And so what we'll do over the rest of this series on 1 Corinthians, right? Um, this series, again, is called Confronting a Contradictory Church. Okay. That Paul is, is addressing problems, and I know we won't have, um, there'll be some scenarios like, hmm, when was the last time I ate meat off into an idol? Like, hmm, nope, don't have any memory of that, <laughs> okay? Uh, so we will make proper applications of, of, of the things that, that Paul is saying, but what I want us to really do is to really probe ourselves. Where is my 
ethics not in line with my theology. And, and as we're working our way through 1 Corinthians, we should be praying and asking God that he brings, a, you know, a parity between those two things, that he would close the gap as much as humanly possible. Right. Um, we, we still all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But but we need to close the gap between our theology and our ethics. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for allowing us again this opportunity to come to your word. We thank you that your word builds us up, but there are also places in your word where you have to tear us down. We pray, Lord, that you would allow the same thing to happen to all of us throughout First Corinthians. In the places where, where Paul is, is, is being confrontational, I pray that you would allow us to feel the confrontation, the tension between Paul and the church and, and to see ourselves in those places. Help us to ask ourselves the question, is our ethics in line with our Christian worldview? Lord, we want to live our lives, as Paul says, worthy of our calling. So that when people see our good works, they can glorify you in heaven. Lord, we pray not only this for ourselves, but for the entire body of Christ all around the world. Too often the the world is looking at us and, and saying, like we saw in the study that I, that I referenced, that, that the church is not living in line with its calling. We often see this in areas of, of social justice, in the areas of race, in the areas of, of how we treat those who are poor. We are not living in line with our Christian ethics. And the world is confused. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to start living the, out what we are saying. Help us to see how the gospel applies to all of these things, even the things that I've mentioned, whether it be race or justice or, or how we help the poor. Help us to see how the gospel plays out in our lives in those areas, Lord, so that the world could see the truth of the gospel. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to work on us. We thank you that even though we fail, we are secure. You will strengthen us to the end so that we will stand blameless in your presence on Judgment Day. I pray, Lord, since we know the outcome, I pray that we will start to live in light of that even right now. Help us to develop this Christian identity, one that is secure and strong in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Again, we are going to continue uh, in 1 Corinthians. We're going to.